Welcome to the Productivity Mastery Podcast, presented to you by myself, Stoyan Yankov, Productivity and Performance Coach, Keynote and TEDx Speaker, and co-author of the Perform Methodology, and the book, Perform, The Unsexy Truth About Startup Success. Join me on a journey to discover what some of the world's leading professionals do to be more productive, create peak performing teams, and build successful global companies. New episodes weekly. And now, enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to Productivity Mastery, the podcast that is bringing you some of the most inspiring and insightful people, leaders in the world. And today I have a very special guest. I'm very honored to be welcoming uh, my guest today. And just to give you a bit of a highlights, because uh, it's been really hard to, to put together the short bio of, uh, of this lady. My guest today, Rita McGrath, is one of the world's top experts on strategy and innovation and is consistently ranked among the top 10 management thinkers in the world, including number one award for strategy by Tinker, Tinkers 50. She's a longtime professor at Columbia Business School. She's a best-selling author, having written five books, most recently, Seeing Around Corners and The End of Competitive Advantage, another book. Uh, she's a sought-after advisor. She's a keynote speaker. She's one of the greatest Thinkers Alive on Strategy and Innovation. So I'm very happy to welcome Rita. How are you this morning, Rita? I am well. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for coming. And initially, we, we set the title of the episode to be on creating early warning scenarios. Um, however, I think we're probably going to go in many other <laughs> directions. But but let's start maybe with, with your story. I, I gave the, the short, short overview about you know, what you do and, and who you are and all the achievements, but can you maybe give us a bit of, a, of an idea of, did you, did you expect to be where you are today? If you look backwards at your career, was that planned? Like, was that a strategy? Oh, oh. Planned, planned in excruciating detail. No, no, no. Of course, like, like most people, um, you know, it was a winding path. I, um, I wanted to be in public service originally and did that for a chunk of time and came to a point where I realized it was just going to be steady state from there on. And so I went back to business school when business schools were really booming and there weren't enough faculty that had PhDs to really teach. So I went to the Wharton School and did a stint in the Entrepreneurship Center there. And that started my interest in corporate venturing and corporate innovation and strategy, which is what got me to kind of where I am today. Was there a moment in your career, maybe like an event or something happened that got you interested into strategy and innovation? Oh yeah, so I had in my government work, I'd done a lot of work on what we called at the time, we called it computerization. Today you would call it digital transformation, but we didn't know that was the term then. Um, and so I came to the Wharton School and worked with Ian McMillan, who was my co-author and my thesis advisor. Uh, 
And I said to him, oh, I really want to study the science of large scale change and implementation. And he said, oh, I can't think of anything more boring than that. <laughs> so fortunately, um, Ira Rimmerman, who was a senior executive at Citigroup at the time, uh, came to us with a proposal to do a three year study of corporate venturing at Citigroup, like what had succeeded, what had failed, what were the um, critical ingredients. And that really got me on this path of strategy and corporate innovation. And what do you observe these days in 2023? What do you see leaders uh, might need to pay more attention to when it comes to strategy? Well, you need two systems, right? And the system that we know and love, it comes from kind of Frederick Winslow Taylor, and it's all about operating with precision and delivering results regularly and all the things that kind of go with delivering today's business. But I think what leaders need to understand is there's a parallel system, which has to do with what's your next company situation going to be? What's your next opportunity for growth and development? And I think we often over-index on the current, the day-to-day, and under focus on the future. Okay, interesting, interesting. We're going to talk about the future quite a bit today and, and the future in the context and, and perspective of uh, 2023 and forward. Um, but, but let's uh, maybe uh, look into a little bit about uh, your most recent published book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the title is Seeing Around Corners. Can you maybe start from there? What does it mean, Seeing Around Corners, and what inspired you to, to, to write this book? Well, the book is really about strategic inflection points. So it's those uh, changes in the environment that create a 10x shift in what's possible or what's likely. Um, and what got me focused on the book was, you know, for years, I I wrestled with this concept, which had been introduced by Andy Grove, I mean, back in the 90s, uh, that there was this thing called a strategic inflection point, which changes what's true about your business. And when they finally reach a tipping point, they feel as though they came out of nowhere. And the crystallization for what came the book, what became the book, was a friend sent me an article called uh, What Have You Changed the World and Nobody Noticed? And the article was about the Wright brothers and their invention of manned flight. And here's what's interesting. So the first Wright brothers flight took place in 1903. So successfully getting a plane up in the air and then back down again (laughs) without killing anybody. Um, And this is a big deal, right? Human beings have wanted to fly for as long as we've been human beings. And yet... The next month in the newspaper, nothing. The next year, nothing. Two years later, three years later, it took five years till 1908 before any major newspapers took this accomplishment seriously. And that made me realize that strategic inflection points feel as though they came out of nowhere. They they sort of burst onto the scene and took you by surprise. But when you really look at them, they've been building up for a really long time. And I think that was the insight that led to the creation of the book, which is if you're paying attention, if you can stay attuned to the early warnings, you can actually anticipate them. And if you get them right, it can take your business to whole new heights. And I think many businesses probably listening right now, many many people uh, from the audience are entrepreneurs or executives, uh, business leaders, uh, they are probably asking themselves, that's great, Rita. But how do we do that? <laughs> how do we how do we set up a culture that is um, well prepared to 
to see these signs, these early warnings. Can you maybe share some more practical ideas around what can we do as leaders that we can we can spot these inflection points? Well, like anything that matters, you need to allocate time for it, right? So you need to you need to get away from your email and stop going to meetings on an endless basis and set aside the time to really sit back and reflect on what is going on in the environment. So the first thing is you need to make time. Second thing is I have a whole model of what I call uh, creating early warnings, where if you imagine the inflection points arrived, here's a time zero event, right? It's, it's, it's the thing has happened. What would have to be true before that could happen? And so work backward to find out what the early warnings are. So for example, uh, about three years ago, I did a project for a pharmaceutical company looking at what was likely to happen with telemedicine. And at the time, what we identified were a bunch of what I call leading indicators. So things like um, you know, Amazon getting into the distribution of uh, pharmaceuticals, things like um, Medicare in the United States being able to negotiate for prices, things like um, original biological treatments being copied by biosimilars. And if you look today at all those early warnings, you know, Happened, 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 happened. I mean, a lot of those things came true. And so one of the early warnings we were looking at was, you know, that, that retailers like Best Buy and Amazon and Walmart would be very, very involved in the healthcare sector in the United States. And that is now currently what seems to be going on. What do you think companies are doing wrong these days? I mean, I'm sure there's many companies that, let's have a look at the pandemic, right? Um, 2020... For many countries, March was the month that that everything shut down. Not for every country, like you know, before that was Italy, maybe China. But but March 2020 was uh, this point that everybody, every, everything shut down, and not not every business was prepared. There were businesses that were probably looking at these warnings, probably getting prepared, but but for some it, it came as a surprise to some extent. So if you look at this example, what could have somebody? that is doing it right do, you know, a few months before. Um... Well, again, you need to take the time and you need to be listening. You need to be paying attention. I mean, if you think about the pandemic, um, 2015, Bill Gates had a very famous TED talk, which said it's not a question of whether, it's a question of when. 2017, the Wall Street Journal featured a complete full page, first, you know, first page article on the, all of the data that were suggesting that we were moving in the direction of a pandemic, it was likely to come from China and, 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 and. And so this was not something that was inconceivable to people. Uh, the Institute of the Future had a whole uh, game, like a, an immersive uh, game around the future of a pandemic and what would happen. And 20,000 people played it. So it wasn't that the data weren't there. It's that we were so busy with other things, we didn't really pay attention. Right. And that, that's probably been the, the best recommendation for right now, Rita, me and my co-author are doing research for our um, new book, which mm -hmm. is about uh, crisis management. Hopefully we can get some of your thoughts in the book as well. And uh, the suggestions and recommendations we have been hearing from business leaders and founders of uh, successful companies have been either we do proper call it risk management, or we're always seeking for potential risks and threats that can come out, or I wish we were setting up systems that we can look and spot these kind of signs. Um, can you maybe, you, you started mentioning the, the three 
uh, you know, the, the lagging, how do you call it, indicators? Yes. Um, can you give us an overview of the three um, indicators? Sure. So if you think about the information that you're using to make a decision, you've always got three kinds of indicators to work with. So you've got lagging indicators, which is great data about stuff that's already happened. And most of the information we use in business is of the lagging variety, right? So it's what happened this quarter and how are sales and things like return on investment. What we always forget is these are lagging indicators. You can't use them to predict the future. Then you've got current indicators, which are things like uh, what you know what's going on right now. So things like what's our employee engagement score right now. And in fact, later today, I'm going to be talking to Tiffany Bobo, who's written this great book called The Experience Mindset about um, you know what's our customer experience and how does that connect to our employee experience. So you got current indicators, what's happening right now. The hardest thing to get a hold of are leading indicators, which is information you can look at today that suggests what the future might have in store. And leading indicators have some fascinating properties, uh, which make them kind of difficult for many many leaders to deal with. So the first thing is they're often not quantitative, they're often qualitative. Uh, so they take the form of stories and anecdotes and opinions. And so reasonable people can disagree. Second thing is we have a pernicious tendency to confuse our preferences with our predictions. So <laughs> this is the future I'd like to have, therefore that's the future I'm going to hone in on. Um, and the third thing is that um, the, the, the the measure of a good leading indicator is not, did it predict what would actually happen? The good measure is, did it help us prepare for and perhaps avoid a future that we'd prefer not to have? Yeah, I love that you're talking about uh, this difference. <laughs> you know, like one is to know, another thing is to, to prepare properly and address it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, wanted to also kind of, if you can elaborate a little bit more on the, um, something that you mentioned a few times, time zero event. Time How zero. would you define time zero event just for the audience to understand? Sure. Well, a time zero event is the moment when the change is visible to everybody. You know, the, the, the thing has happened. So recently, you know, we had chat GPT last November, right? And for the very first time, all of humanity suddenly realized what artificial intelligence could actually do. Um, and, and I think that would be an example where all of a sudden this thing's been brewing, you know, for decades and decades, but now an ordinary person could log on, could issue a prompt, could get some kind of AI generated text. And now all of a sudden everybody realized that that's now possible. And it, it's sort of the way Netscape was with the internet, right? Um, the internet had been around for decades, but it wasn't until Netscape created a, a, a browser that any human being could access that people said, whoa, this is now uh, happening. Um, another example would be when smartphones, as we know them, were first introduced in, in 2007, people suddenly realized, whoa, I can have a supercomputer in my pocket. So it's that moment of this is now fact, you know, the change has come that we realize that's a time zero event. Um, but time zero events are sort of punctuations in a great flow of lot, lots of other events. And it takes a long, long time for them to become manifest. Yeah. And, and one of the challenges of uh, sort of seeing potential event like this is that you are not certain that this is going to turn into a time zero event, right? No. You just you just have you're working with probabilities, um, and 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 this is probably 
something many entrepreneurs are also asking themselves, right? How, how do I how do I work with uncertainty? How do I, um, you know, address the risk that potentially could happen if I'm not sure that they will ever be there? Well, right, right, and I mean that that you know fundamentally entrepreneurship is about creating value out of things that other people don't see. So what great entrepreneurs do is they have the ability to say, hey, if this and this and this and this combine in a certain way, I can make you know, enormous profits by seeing that potential. Um, but what people don't realize is the, the highest uncertainty areas are often the most rewarding in terms of profits. And people always wanna play the safe thing, right? But but that's not where the profits lie because by the time something's safe, everybody knows about it and anybody could do it. I just wanna give uh, also to say hello to the people who are watching us from different places. You have uh, Taras from the Netherlands. We have Edgar from Denmark. Navit is joining from Austria and then Sushma is joining from the other side, whatever that means. Hello, everybody. And if you have any questions to, to read them, make sure to post them uh, on the live stream, LinkedIn. We'll make sure to take some questions. Uh, Rita, I'm curious to hear about your personal journey. Uh, you're a professor at the Columbia Business School, uh, probably leading a, a few different courses there. You are traveling, you're writing books, you're consulting some of the top executives across the world. How do you, how do you manage your time? <laughs> Like everybody, with you know some success and some not success, <laughs> I think. I, um, well, for me, it's it's a question of different buckets. So what I try to do is allocate dedicated time to specific objectives that I think are really important. So uh, this year, I'm writing a book, so I'm going to be blocking time in my calendar just to focus on that. Um, with Columbia, it's a focus of you know the courses are planned well in advance, so so I you know. Those are those are always booked, and you know the speaking and things are uh, kind of when I can fit it in. So, you know, it's a question of deciding on what your strategic priorities are, and then everything kind of gets lined up behind that. You know, that, that's that's what I'm curious to dig a little bit deeper into. So, so because you're teaching strategy, you're one of the best in the world. I'm curious how much of these, uh, you know, theories and tools you're actually using on a on a personal basis as oh, well. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely do. Um, so it's funny. I was I was showing my husband just last night. I have a I have a spreadsheet that I use when I'm deciding what Love to spend it. my time on, and uh, it's actually got a scorecard. And so I have all these dimensions of what might be important as I'm deciding what to spend time on. And so you got things like, um, what is it interesting, right? Or does it have a potential for big impact? Or you know, does it pay well? Or does it, you know, whatever, whatever the dimensions are that are of strategic interest. And I break it into two parts. So the first part is things that would disqualify an opportunity right off the bat. Um, and if it survives that screen, then I have a series of 15 different dimensions that I look at and the scores can be perfect. This thing delivers on that. Absolutely. Or the scores can be, well, it's okay, but it doesn't really deliver. Or the scores can be negative. Right. So, um, just as an example, if something requires, you know, a huge amount of work and it's not a topic area that I'm particularly interested in or it's not an audience that I think is really desirable, then that would get a lower score. And then what you can do is you can actually rank order all the opportunities that you've got against this common set of scorecards. It's hugely useful. So you have taken the time to 
create a scoreboard based on what matters most to you. And that could be a good recommendation for the people listening as well, right? If you if you have to decide where to spend your time, is that is that you do that for let's say speaking engagements or consulting or sidekicks, right? Like that's that's oh, yeah. sort of like the screening. I yeah, I do. I do. Um, and this all came out of a, a research project I did on myself. Um, this was a while ago now, but uh, what I did is I took everything that I spent time on over the course of a year and I scored them on this strategic score and then I rank ordered them. And what I found was there's three categories of things. There's things that absolutely I would do that. It was worthwhile. It, it made a big difference. I really enjoyed it. It was really great. So that was the top category. Then you've got this middle category, which is, well, you know, it was all right and fine. I, it wasn't a mistake, but it wasn't fantastic either. And then there's this bottom category of what was I thinking when I agreed to do that? You know? And so my goal is to have less of the bottom category and more of the top two. And since you mentioned I'm a spreadsheet person and I'm uh, just like everybody else failing sometimes, but I'm managing my time uh, looking into the different um, options, how I can spend my time and then, and then prioritizing. But can you maybe share what is what is the method you use on a daily basis? Let's say you have your goals, you you have uh, the different courses and things, but like day to day, do you allocate a certain amount of time on a daily basis to to organize your next day, or oh, yeah, or is it weekly? How do you do it? Yeah, so well, I do. I'll do a weekly um, kind of typically over the weekend, I'll kind of look at the week to come and see what, what that looks like. And then between my assistant and myself, I will actually, if I need to get serious work done, I'll block off chunks of time to do that. So for example, next week, um, I've got three days that I'm allocating to working on my next book. And it's just, it's just blocked. And, and it's funny, you know, people try to climb onto the calendar and I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm not doing that. Pretend I'm away, pretend I'm traveling. <laughs> you know, I'm just not available. And if you don't have the discipline to do that, your time just gets dissipated in all kinds of different ways. Out of curiosity, are you more extroverted or more introverted person? Oh, totally extroverted, <laughs> absolutely. Okay, okay, we need to talk. Um, <laughs> how are you writing your sixth book and you are publishing articles and how do you do that? Like, tell me, tell me the, the, the secret. Well, I think the part of it is to get into a regular rhythm of writing. So you may know I, I write a weekly newsletter, which is a big challenge. I mean, that, that to, to put up put up decent content every week is not trivial. Um, and and so it's having the discipline to have some definite outputs that you're trying to achieve each time. And when I'm working on a book, it's very much. Um, chunks of time that need to be dedicated to I'm, I'm i'm blocking everything else out of my life i'm just going to work on this book right now so, so do you do you say well from eight to twelve o'clock on tuesday i need to write uh, three pages of my book for example um sort of sort of i it's not quite that gran granular it's more like i'm going to take monday and that's all i'm doing monday and then and then the book, you know, it's a creative process. So it's not like three pages, like a factory. It's more, um, so some some of writing the book could be uh, creating the outline. Some of it could be filling in things. Some of it could be, ooh, you know, I'm down a rabbit hole on all these papers that, that I used to read, you know, that I've worked on in the past. Um, so it, it, what I do within that time is kind of driven by what the ideas require at the moment. Um, but the time is definitely dedicated. The other thing I think that's important is um, I'm a big closure person. Like I like 
tasks that have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, and a lot of people, I think, they never have closure. They, they just, they don't define what, what getting to the end state is. And so they're endlessly sort of churning in the middle of that whole process. So my encouragement to your listeners is, you know, really think about what, what does the end look like? What does success look like? And if you can work toward that on a regular basis, you're going to be a lot farther along than if you just kind of churn and work and try to be perfect all the time. That, that isn't very successful usually. I'm so happy you said that. Uh, and the way you put it was, was beautiful. Uh, I had a conversation with David Allen, the, the author of uh, Getting Things Done. And the way he put it was many people don't know what done looks like. And, and when you don't know what you're what you're shooting after, mm -hmm. the the chance you shoot it, <laughs> you, you hit the target is, is very small. So so oh, it, the first thing people need to do is just to sit down and say, what do I want to achieve? Not what, what is the activity I do. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that I think is really important is not everything needs to be perfect, right? I mean, sometimes done with sort of a medium level of quality is good enough for the particular thing you're doing. And sometimes it really does require, yes high levels of perfection, high levels of, of, of consistency and quality. But sometimes it's just the fact that you did the thing and that's enough. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever struggled with perfectionism yourself? Of course. Yeah, I think we all do, right? I mean, you always want to be better than, than whatever you're able to accomplish at the moment. Um, I think over the years I've gotten better at saying that I think it's, it's defining degrees, right? So here are places where I really do want to be perfect and it really does need to be done right. Um, and I would say any place that's really high risk or where there's a complexity or where the, we're not getting the thing right has a huge downside. I mean, that's where you, know, you really do want to put the effort into making sure that you're correct. Um, there's a lot of other cases, though, where it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, it just matters that it's done. It doesn't matter that it was perfect. And I think that's a great advice to anybody listening who's maybe uh, over perfectionistic. Everything needs to be perfect at all times. And then you're stressing about it and you are late on deadlines and all these kind of things. And, and then maybe listen to Rita and remind, you know, next time you're thinking about it, just, just think about uh, Rita's voice, you know, um, hey, not everything needs to be perfect. There's things that you need to prioritize, but you got to pick your battles. And there are certain things that 62% is just good enough and you got to mm. move on. Yes. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Um, let's talk about strategy. And, and I'm curious from, from somebody who's so much on both fronts, right? You're, you're in academics, but you're also very close to the industry. You have your own business. Um, has the theories of of about strategy failed us in the last the last few years? I'm just curious because I don't know, right? Um, the theories about strategy and how we should do business strategies are they plausible for the environment, the uncertain, turbulent environment we're in the, in the last few years? Well, it depends on whose theory you're reading. Um, I mean, the traditional idea of strategy really came from the world of industrial economics. And industrial economics makes two assumptions. First is that there is a thing called an industry and that that is the most important factor in your strategy analysis, right? So I would say that has definitely been upended recently. Um, instead, what we're competing in is what I call arenas, which are pots of resources that you're contesting and different players are going after different aspects of those resources. Uh, the second thing from industrial economics that 
we've inherited is this idea of equilibrium, that equilibrium is the normal state of things. In other words, steady state. And so out of that comes this idea of sustainable competitive advantage and that that's what you want to drive. And what I would argue instead is that what we're dealing with today is far more full life cycle appreciations of what strategy is. So you have a, a period of strategy formation where something's created that has the potential to have an impact in the world. If you're successful, if you've launched it successfully, then you have a period indeed of exploitation where you're at equilibrium, you're making money, things are good. And then the world moves on, right? And so your strategy then goes into erosion. And so the the principle for strategy today is you want these continual waves of future competitive advantage. And so what that means is you need to incorporate innovation into your strategy. So, you know, in the past, we used to think of innovation as this weird thing that sort of took place once in a while and, you know, maybe it mattered and maybe it didn't, but strategy was all about existing competitors and your your five forces analysis and where you are in your industry. Uh, today, what we're seeing is really the integration of in innovation and strategy and the connection of this sort of flow of ongoing development of new opportunities that can become future strategies. And the recognition that, you know, we, we need to get smarter at stopping things, right? What don't we want to do? From your experience and observation, how does strategy get confirmed in a company uh like how does it happen is that a you know there's a board meeting the ceos and everybody there and then okay that's the strategy let's go um you know how is it happening from your observations and what do you think could be changing the way we look at defining what the strategy should be well i think you know, a couple of observations so the first observation is we often confuse budgeting and strategy. So you have this notion of strategic planning and what that means often is how do we set our budgets? And I think that's a mistake. What we want to do is really have a strategy process where you know, you got a dedicated time of the year to it, where people are really thinking about, okay, what 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 are the what's the situation, right? What's the situation analysis? And I like to look at what I call five C's. So customers, competitors, complementary relationships, our own company, what, you know, what are our capabilities and, and so forth, and then the greater context in which we are. And so there's a period in which I think you need to really reflect on and absorb what's going on in the world that's relevant to us. Uh, then there's a period of socializing and sense-making. How do I get my senior team aligned around this? And you want to have all that happening before you then turn to budgets. And one of the big challenges I see a lot of companies wrestling with is that budgets are very fixed. You know, they don't, they don't shift as our worldview and our strategy shifts when they really should. And there are a few companies that are very good at moving their budgets around. Um, Amazon would, would be a case in point, I think. They're very good at saying, okay, you know, last year, maybe you had 60 people. Next year, you don't have really great opportunities for growth. So maybe you have 30 people. And, and last year you had 60 people. Maybe you've got a great growth plan. Next year, you're going to have 600. Very few companies are good at that kind of flexibility in terms of how they allocate resources. So my suggestion would be lots of situation analysis, socializing among the senior team, and then setting the strategy. And then you have to figure out how to loop everybody. And so another great company that I think does this well is Salesforce. Uh, and they have a process they call the V2MOM, which is vision and values. That's the two Vs. Then your methods, what are you hoping to do? 
your uh, obstacles that you're facing, and then your metrics. How would you know if you succeeded? And here's what's fascinating about that company. It starts at the top. The senior team does their V2 mom. It's subject to lots and lots and lots of feedback and discussion, but they finally settle on one. And then every single person in the company has their own, and it's posted on a company internet. So if you and I are working together at, at Salesforce, we can read each other's V2 mom. And now I know what you're trying to accomplish. You know what I'm trying to accomplish. And it creates this incredible alignment across the company. What would be, what would be your advice to a newly hired CEO of a very traditional company when it comes to incorporated, incorporating innovation and strategy together? Wow, a big question. Well, the first thing I think you need to think about is you need an innovation governance structure. And that means you need a dedicated budget for it that doesn't depend on a line manager, you know, a, a business unit leader uh, giving up money in a particular, you, you need kind of a dedicated uh, kind of R&D or, or, or in innovation budget. And you need a governance structure. So that often takes the form of a growth board. Uh, you need to know what your criteria are for what's in scope and what's out of scope for innovation. Um, and then you need a place to put innovation, right? <laughs> and there's different options for where you put that. Uh, for example, at IBM, they had a structure which was run by a guy named Bruce Harold, who was a very senior leader. And his whole job was looking after what they called emerging business opportunities. And so you need some kind of power structure that mitigates against the pressures of the day-to-day -day and the existing business to create that space for new things to grow. You know, there was a, there was an article that uh, you were quoting someone. I don't remember the name, but but you used the term. Uh, I think it was intelligent failure. Mm -hmm. uh, can you maybe talk about that? What is intelligent failure? How do we build a culture where that uh, that is allowed? Sure. Well, so you know, failure is this huge hot topic, um, and uh, my friend Amy Edmondson has a great book coming out on this called "Right Kind of Wrong," which really deals uh, in in failure. But the concept of intelligent failures was first coined by a, a guy named Simsikin, who's a professor at Duke University, and what he he defined an intelligent failure as the kind of failure you need in genuine uncertainty. So you can think about this almost like the scientific method, right? So in the scientific method, we have a hypothesis, we do an experiment, either the hypothesis is validated or it's not. Um, and, and the fact that our hypothesis was not validated, any scientist will tell you that's fine, that's progress. You know, we, 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 we thought there might be a situation or an issue that uh, was true and it wasn't, it, it wasn't supported. So that's great. So there's a whole class of things we can now set aside and focus on the things that look as though they're really important. And so in science, that's well understood. And so this is the business equivalent of that process, which is it's genuinely uncertain. I don't know. So maybe, maybe an example would be helpful. So one of the companies I was working with uh, it was called Barrow Money. Now it's Barrow Bank. And it's a branchless bank, which is organized around the mission of helping uh, income secure, but cash flow challenged young people build a better life, right? So these are people, young people with jobs, but they don't have a lot of wealth yet. And so anytime the car breaks down or they need a security deposit on an apartment or there's a wedding or, you know, there's some challenge to their cash flow, now they're, now they're in a pickle. And the traditional way banks solve this problem is by charging them hugely high amounts of interest. And so Vero Bank is all about solving that problem. 
And so it's branchless. Everything's intermediated by a cell phone. Um, and so the, and there's a chatbot, an AI enforced chatbot that manages all these interactions. And so very early in the design process, it arose the question of, well, what sort of personality should this chatbot have? And there were two camps, right? One camp was, oh, the chatbot should be very informal. You know, like, hey, dude, you know, tough weekend. Huh? Don't worry. Uh, got your back. Emoji, emoji, you know, thumbs up. Uh, and then the other opinion was, well, no, it should be very formal. You know, Mr. Robertson, mm. this is our recommendation. And what's interesting is, you know, there's no facts, right? Because we've got examples of both. Traditional banks are very formal. Something like Venmo is very casual. So there are two reasonable hypotheses here. And so what we did was we did a little test. We uh, we got two interns to play the two various versions of the, the chatbots. Chat <laughs> yeah, we to mimic the chatbots. We had some programmers code up some um, wireframes to, to sort of test it out. And we sort of lured members of our customer segment into the conference room with promises of free pizza. And we tested it out. And it turns out that when it comes to your savings and your personal security, the hey dude guy doesn't do it, right? You you want the security, you want the the the, the, the stability of a Mr. Robertson. And now in that framing, right, the, the hey dude people failed, like their hypothesis was not supported. But when you ask yourself the question, did they really fail? No. Not at all. It was a reasonable hypothesis. There are examples in the world where that's actually the way that humans interact with technology. It didn't happen to be borne out in this particular situation, but you have to think about it much more like an experiment than like a thing you could predict. And this is something, I don't know about you, Rita, I've, I've consulted many companies myself, and one of the most common things that I hear from leaders who really want to make a change and make a culture more innovative is my people still struggling because, because let's say there's a new leader in the company and the company was a lot more traditional. So not too much experimentation and, and creativity, like just do your job. Otherwise, if you make a mistake, you get punished, right? Mm -hmm. So people learn to not uh, innovate and try things mm -hmm. out and experiment and, and, you know, leaders struggle to, how do I bring back this culture where people are feeling safe to, to go out there and to fail intelligently? So do you have any advice for, for how do we inspire a culture of innovation? Sure. Um, so the first thing is I think leaders need to make it clear that that's an expectation. That you know, if, if you never try something new and you don't experiment, that that's not welcome. So one of my favorite leaders had a... a a phrase that he uses in his regular performance reviews. And he'll say to every person who reports him to him, show me your scrap heap. And what he means by that is show me, you know, come into our one-on-ones prepared with all the things that you tried, why you thought they might work out and why they didn't. Uh, so that he calls that the scrap heap, right? And so he makes it really, really clear in all of his one-on-ones. If you don't have anything to tell me about, well, what are you doing? You know, like what, like why you're just you're like a robot. You're not executing your creativity. The second thing I think you can do very practically is create what I call a contract for intelligent failure. And so you meet with your people um, and you say, if you try something and it meets the following criteria, then it's not a failure. It's an intelligent failure, right? Uh, so the hypothesis was clearly stated. If it didn't work out, we knew why. So we learned something. 
Uh, we did it quickly. We did it with very low resources. We uh, we were able to articulate what the logic was uh, behind this thing. And if it didn't work out, we were able to communicate the results so that we all, as a company or as a as an organization, learned from it. And so you can create these like one-page contracts for intelligent failure that allow people to say, oh, well, if it meets these criteria, that's okay. I love it. I love it. I'm so making one after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we have uh, somebody who's a fan of your book who's who's joining us uh, here live. Uh, he's saying, oh, my God, what a legendary guest <laughs> seeing around the corners. Uh, and then he has a question. So let's uh, let's see what the, Andre. Thank you so much for, for tuning in. Great having you on the show. And his question is, uh, any thought on the evolution of the conflict between stakeholder capitalism versus maximizing shareholder value since 2020 very uh, easy question <laughs> <laughs> well i think we've i think we've evolved a lot um so i think the, the, sort of three things uh the first thing is the fundamental problem we're wrestling with is a question of timing if you were to evaluate corporate performance over longer time frames than an annual time frame say somewhere between five and seven years the the disconnect between shareholder capitalism and capitalism for everybody else would largely evaporate because what we know is that if you manage companies over longer time horizons that you do better when all the different stakeholders are engaged and involved and 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 pleased where i think we get into trouble is when we get into this quarter by quarter or annual mindset it's sort of what what money can i squeeze out of the organization in this very short time frame that's where we get into trouble so i think part of the problem is our time frames for analyzing risk and reward so that's the first problem uh second problem is we know that if you are a good employer if you treat your employees well if you deliver results uh, for your employees as well as your customers, that you will tend to have better growth and higher performance. And there's two recent books that show this. One is Zainab Tan's uh, The Case for Good Jobs. And the other is the one I just showed you earlier, Tiffany Boba's The Experience Mindset. And both of them basically say, look, you can't just focus on shareholders because you're ignoring customers and you're ignoring employees and you're ignoring the, the sources of uh, the, the benefits. So then the second problem is, You know, we don't really understand the causality of what ultimately does drive shareholder returns. And then I think the third is we've had a series of institutional shifts since the 1980s that have allowed actors who don't actually have the long-term best interest of a corporation to benefit hugely from financial rake-offs, basically. And I think we need to fix that. I think that's, a, that's an error in the capitalistic system that we're in the process, I think, of addressing. Andre, uh, let us know in the comments what uh, what are your thoughts. Uh, if you have any comments on on the answer of Rita, and we continue on. Uh, actually, we're sli sliding into the topic of of uh, managing through uncertainty, and uh, I would like to 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 hear your thoughts. Um, could be examples. It could be just general thoughts on what would be your what what would be your best advice in terms of preparing well for an upcoming crisis let's assume that i don't know there is a business leader their industry is very likely to be hit i don't know ai right mm -hmm. um and and it's coming so what would be your best advice to leaders listening to prepare best for for an upcoming crisis so i think there's a leadership dimension and then there's a kind of a 
strategy, corporate, how do you put in place dimension? Um, so let me start with the leadership dimension. So um, uh, Tom Kolditz, who's a good friend of mine, wrote a great book called In Extremist Leadership, in which he looks at leaders in military situations, in situations of great danger, um, and what he calls them is uh, danger professionals. He says, you know, most of what we know about crisis comes from people that found themselves in a crisis and either they succeeded or they didn't, but it wasn't they're not professionals, right? <laughs> they just sort of happened to be in a situation which evolved into a crisis. And what he was interested in studying was what he calls crisis professionals, people that voluntarily and deliberately put themselves in positions of great danger and what makes them succeed. And a couple of things that I think are worth noting from his observation is he says, you know, the first thing they have to do is they have to create this relationship between people where people feel that they can trust you. They know they know you've had repeated promises that are kept, right? You, 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 you've got trusted relationships. So that when the crisis hits, you've already got this bond of human connection that allows people to um, uh, connect. Second thing that I think is, is hugely important about his work is he said, what great leaders do in a crisis is they dampen the emotional temperature. So, you know, if you look at the movies, right, we, we look at crisis leaders in the movies and they're slamming down telephones and screaming at people. And, you know, and it's just it's no good leaders in a crisis. Take the emotional temperature down. They say, let's try to take a deep breath. Let's be calm. Let's take that step back. Let's pause um, and let's really reflect on what our options are. And then it's a question of very carefully assessing you know, absorb what I call absorbing uncertainty for people. So you don't you don't have the answer right in the middle of a crisis. But what you can do is say, okay, here's the assumptions I'm making. For now, here is what I expect you to behave like, because these are the assumptions that we're making at the moment. Um, and so you you take the burden of uncertainty off your people so they can do whatever it is they need to do. Because another thing Tom says is you need to get people focused outside themselves. So if they're in the middle of a dangerous situation and they're panicking, they go, oh my God, you know, what does this mean for me? You don't want that. What you want to do is say, okay, you know, um, what your job for the next two and a half hours is to take this pen and move it from here to here. And if you do that well, that'll be a contribution to our ultimate success. So get people focused outside themselves on something that's a meaningful task. Give people clarity about the um, the 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 assumptions that you're making and, and take the burden of all that uncertainty away from them. I think that's hugely important. So that's kind of the leadership dimension of it to me. Now the strategy dimension of it is under uncertainty, the most important thing you can do is learn as quickly as possible. So what that means is you want to be able to create contained chunks of experience, which can inform the next step. Uh, and so I like to talk about being discovery driven, right? So you're, you're designing learning experiences as quickly as you can so that you can develop uh, the next uh, situation. So uh, my friend Bent Lieberg, uh, who's a professor at Oxford and also a Danish university, wrote a great book called um, How Big Things Get Done, which I love. I have it right beside me. And what he talks about is in huge, massive mega projects, for example, what you want to do is be as modular as possible because that's how you learn. And we all know as human beings, the first time you do anything, you're not very good at it. You only get better at it by repeating and repeating. And so he uses the example of the Madrid subway. And in many, many subway systems, what they do is each station is its own thing. And each, you know, each, each time you're, you're creating something new, it's, it's novel. 
he says, that's ridiculous. You know, you can't learn that way. With Madrid, what they did was every single station had been basically the same blueprint. And so as you built station after station after station, you got better at it. You had a learning curve effect that worked in your advantage. So when you're learning under uncertainty, break things down into small pieces, learn as much as you can, document your hypotheses, test them, and then and then move on to the next hypothesis. I think that's really important. I love it. I have a, a follow-up uh, sub-question. So creating this more frequent learning experiences and, and sharing with everybody else, just, just, to, just to get it even lower down in the trenches, right? Is, um, would you recommend including as many sources of data? How, how do we filtrate, filter data? Because, you know, when there's a crisis, um, there's a lot of information and not everything is information that's uh, reliable. So, so, you know, the, on the one side, would you include, who would you include in, in this information gathering and how do you filter so that the information is, is reliable? Well, you want to look at multiple sources. So if you have a hypothesis, right, and you've only got one data source, it might be good, it might not be. So what you want is multiple sources of data that point to a common hypothesis. I think what you also want to be careful of is what's the quality of that data? You know, is it is it something that comes from a reliable source? Is there some reason to believe that, for example, the expert that you caused. I mean, this is a fascinating thing, right? So we, as humans, get influenced by experts who are not experts in the particular topic that we're interested in, right? So you've got all these celebrities, for example, endorsing, say, skin cream. Well, you know, if I was going to pick a skin cream for its pharmacological properties, you would probably want somebody who's an expert in pharmacological science <laughs> to give you advice on that. You don't want somebody whose primary expertise is performing before a camera. So I think you want to look at really what the sources of information that you're using and whether that source has actually got relevant domain expertise. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rita. We have a bunch of questions coming from the audience. I want to make sure we cover them. So first of all, Andre is, uh, wants to give a reply to your answer and says, thank you so much. I believe as society, we will be struggling, prioritizing and balancing among various stakeholders. Also, shareholders bear all the risks that come into equity. So rather stakeholders are willing to absorb additional risks or their opinion is less important compared to shareholders. Basically, bottleneck is how can we educate stakeholders into shareholders well, that's his comment um, and then he's uh, but let me just uh, i'll be back to you andre but uh, there was a question coming from uh, from navid that, that that came out first so navid uh, navid thank you for being with us back in 2021 he says i was a co-speaker at the partner summit where rita delved into how it's not enough to think about the exploitation part of the strategy journey but how it is also essential to focus on the innovation and growth parts of the strategy. With the strategic landscape changing dramatically outside your organization, you need to build an organization that can grapple with that. Rita, is this still relevant in the world of chat GPT and open AI? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, you can think about it. And uh, my colleague, Greg Galley talks about this. Like you've got the now organization. So this is the today's result of all the things we've built from the past. Like that's today. We turn the crank, money comes out, we're profitable, you know, whatever. But you've also got the next organization, which you need to run in parallel with the now organization. And of course that's still relevant. And chat GPT and AI and all those things are, you know, it's gonna open up a whole new vector of growth. That's that's where all the venture capital money's going these days, right? That's where the next organizations are going to thrive. So it's absolutely as important to maintain both. 
And once again, thanks, thanks everybody for contributing with questions. We are getting Juan right now, Juan Miguel Robles, who's uh, saying, yes, yes, Rita is a great guest. <laughs> I have a question for Rita. He says, in your experience, how much time it takes for a traditional company to change to an innovative company? Uh, that's a great question. I would say you're looking at a two to three year journey. If, if things go really fast, probably a five year journey if you've got a lot more embedded uh, issues that you have to tackle. Um, so it's a journey. You can't change everything all at once. It's too destabilizing. So you need to have it at pace. Um, you know, a great example of, of large scale changes, if you look at Gandhi and and changing India from being basically a colony to being an independent state, it took 27 years. And what what he would do, and I think this is really fascinating. This is something my friend uh, Hitendra Wadwa talks about. He said he would he would create a big change, right? So it was a dramatic, sudden shift, and then he would let things get calm and sort of work on the infrastructure behind the change, and then there would be a big change again, and then calm. Um, and I think sometimes with organizations, we want to change everything all at once, and that that's too much. You know, it's almost like too difficult to do all, all at the same time. You need to have moments of change when things really shift and then you need to kind of give it time for the change to sink in and let things get more stable. Thank you, Juan, for being with us as well and for, for the great question. And we have another question from Andre who's uh, just uh, fired up. Thanks, Andre, for being with us. So he says, uh, ho-ho, uh, uh, make a distinction between social responsible innovation and pure extractive value redistribution to new entrants by avoid certain regulation. Well, so here's the thing about capitalism, Andre. Um, capitalism is driven by the profit motive and it works very well when there are effective markets. Now, what makes for an effective market? An effective market is where there's equality of information on both sides of the transaction, where the price of the thing that's being exchanged is reasonable and fair. Uh, and where there's a clear and well-understood mechanism for value exchange. Where capitalism fails is when those things don't apply. And what your question implies is where, you know, you're making money, um, but you're imposing costs on society. Capitalism doesn't work in those situations. So my friend um, Rebecca Henderson talks about this. She says, so, so imagine burning enough coal to power your laptop for five minutes, right? So let's say that the the actual price of that in terms of the coal that you're buying is five cents, right? But if you go to your public health people and you say, well, what's the social burden of burning that chunk of coal? And it might be another five cents in public health costs. And if you go to the environmental people and you say, what's the environmental cost of burning that chunk of coal? That might be another five cents. So the true cost of that transaction is 15 cents, but capitalism's only see, seeing the five cents. So this is where capitalism needs to have guardrails and this is where government needs to get involved. This is where you, you need to have the rules of the road established. Otherwise you do get this problem of extraction. And, and uh, my friend Bill Lazonic has this wonderful book called Predatory Value Extraction, which basically talks about how in some cases we've just allowed executives and companies to extract value from the value creating processes that were created in previous regimes and that you need some kind of external authority to say that's not legit. Once again, thank you, Andre, for, for the great question as well. And, and, and Rita, I, I, I'm curious uh, to hear if you can have uh, 
something to share from from the kitchen so to say because you, you consult and advise many top executives and and, and leaders on, on highest level what are their biggest concerns these days what are they struggling with what what do they ask for guidance on well i think um talent is a huge issue um I think the, the, the fear that they're not going to have the right people or that the people that they have are not going to be at the right level to mount the next generation competitive advantage. I think that's a big concern. I think there is a lot of concern about, you know, how do I balance my innovation agenda with my need to, you know, be responsible to shareholders and deliver value. I think that's another big one. Uh, a lot of executives I talk to are very concerned about culture. How do we build a culture where people want to be here, where people feel, Good. you know, where people Good. feel that they, they, you know, they want to be there? So I think those kinds of issues are, are very much at top of mind. I'm super happy that the executive agenda finally got to a, we need to make companies a place where people feel like they belong and people are not just an asset. I mean, many companies started changing the the word human resource with people department or people management which is a good thing um what, what do you think we we should do do you think we, we it's a little bit too late to to make this step now or, or or what can we do now somebody listening right now let's say they haven't really prioritized people um genuinely maybe they say we are people first but just just for the pr right but what can leaders do in order to make uh, their cultures more people friendly well, I think the first thing you need to realize is that it's great to focus on customers uh, and the customer experience, but you need to have a parallel focus on the employee experience. And so um, Tiffany Boba, who I'm going to be talking to later today uh, from Salesforce, has done an analysis that suggests the typical large organization has over a thousand applications somewhere in their organization, and only about 23% of them are integrated. So if you think about a frontline worker, um, trying to respond to a customer request. You know, they've got one system to go to for the customer's identity information and another system to go to for the customer's credit information and another system to go to. In other words, it's, it's, it's awful. I mean, their days are just awful. So I think you need to think about what's the employee experience in parallel with the customer experience. And there's some great leaders who've always said, hey, employees first. You know, Herb Kelleher at Southwest Airlines was famous for this. You know, he said, if, if I take care of my employees, they'll take care of my customers and everybody will be happier. So I think this notion of building um, a, an employee friendly organization is starting to get more traction than it once did. I mean, we're still operating, you know, with this Taylorist kind of idea like there's the one best way and everything's run by algorithms and you know efficiency is paramount and i'm not saying that's wrong but i'm saying you need these other qualities these more human qualities in parallel with that do you have on the top of your mind any any good examples of uh, exceptional employee experience like like maybe some practices some examples something that comes on top of mind like you you observe a company you saw that they did something with the onboarding or or during the oh sure you know. um, i mean a great resource there is Zainab Tan's book um uh, the case for good jobs and she talks about costco would be an example where people are paid well they are uh, allocated stable hours they are 
given an upward mobility uh, trajectory within the company. So they're promoted from within. They're treated with respect. They're treated with dignity. They're, they, you know, they help each other. They're seen as a team. So that would be an example, even in a low margin industry where you've got a, a workforce that's really being managed with excellence, being managed uh, very well. So Costco would be an example. Trader Joe's is another one where, um, you know, and again, low margin industry, but you go into a Trader Joe's and people love it working there. You know, they're laughing, they're joking, they're supporting each other. If you ask somebody a question and they happen to be, let's just say in the box department, but you ask them a question about vegetables, they'll know because they've been cross-trained. You know, they, they understand what each other are doing. They're helpful. Uh, they're well-stocked. And what Zainab talks about is um, you, what you want to avoid is this vicious cycle where you treat people poorly, you pay them badly, you don't cross-train them, and so you have high turnover, and so you don't have knowledgeable employees, so your customers have a bad experience, and, 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 and it all builds on itself. So what she argues that I think makes a brilliant economic case for is that if you treat your workers well, that will benefit your customers, that will benefit you in, you know, in the end game. This is such a such a great way to to wrap up this episode. My final question would be: What would be your final message to the business leaders out there who are trying to navigate in a world of uncertainty of 2023? <laughs> I'd say focus on learning. You know, that's that's going to be the way that you get through uncertainty. It's learning what hypotheses make sense, learning what assumptions hold and which don't. And, and and then just uh, thank you so much, Rita, for that. Just uh, for everybody who's listening right now, I'm, I'm sure they want to connect with you, maybe follow you. Could you maybe share, I want to give you a couple of minutes to just share what projects are you on? I know you're writing a new book. Uh, maybe give us a bit of an idea about the, the, the names of your books. Uh, if you have a podcast, like, like you're on LinkedIn, where could people find you and get inspired and potentially work with you? Uh, well, RitaMcGrath.com is my main website. I also have a website called Valise.com, which is my implementation company. That's the company that has all the tools to help you actually put this stuff into practice. So that's V-A-L-I-Z-E.com. Um, I do a weekly um, little, I call them thought sparks. They're not really newsletters, but they're sort of weekly articles on things I think are interesting. Uh, and I do, uh, every other week, I do um, a fireside chat, which is Firesides right there, uh, with thought leaders and entrepreneurs and people I think are interesting. And there's a whole archive of those on YouTube. So people are very, very welcome to uh, have a look at those. If you want to subscribe to the weekly publications, uh, I'm on Substack, I'm on Medium, um, there's LinkedIn. So you can find it wherever, um, what, what, whatever channel is easiest for you. We'll make sure to add this to the podcast notes. Uh, and once again, thanks everybody for joining us live or listening to the podcast on the recording. I hope you're having a great day. And if you're not, uh, hang on. It's going to get better. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe to Productivity Mastery on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Make sure to check out Rita McGrath and all the cool things she's doing. Thank you so much, Rita, for being with us. And to everybody else, thanks for being with us and see you next time at the Productivity Mastery Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure to subscribe to my monthly newsletter by visiting stoyaniankov.com and also learn about the Perform Methodology and the Perform Book, as well as our various personal and team coaching offers. Stay tuned and keep performing. <laughs>